Let's begin the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa, reciting it three times in Pali. Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavata Arahata Sama Sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavata arahato samma sambuddhasa. Tonight in this Dhamma talk, the main body of the talk is to talk about some reflections on the danger of anger, aversion, ill will, and reflections on the benefits of patience. But before I go there, I want to say a few words about the spirit of metta, like what metta is and what it isn't. Venerable Viranyani has already talked about this, uh, on the first night, but I think it's good to remind ourselves again and again what metta actually is and what it isn't. And hearing it again, maybe it just, the dr- maybe the understanding just drops a little bit further down. And What is the spirit of metta? This is in Sayadaw Uindaka's words. He's one of my teachers. And he has written a book about the practice of metta meditation as a foundation for the Vipassana meditation practice. He has written this book in Burmese and I have translated it into English, also into German. And so, in this book, he describes the spirit of metta as follows. The spirit of metta is the wish for the welfare and happiness of all beings. There is never a wish for anything that is not beneficial. In the spirit of metta, we always work for the benefit of other beings. We never work to create suffering or to inflict harm or injuries. The spirit of metta is always cool and peaceful. It never burns. Or, as Sayadaw Uindaka also very often uh, says, metta is like an aircon. When you turn on the aircon, it gets cool and refreshing. Or another picture is, it's like sitting under a large shady tree where it is cool, 
and nice. The spirit of metta is always soft, gentle, and subtle. It is never rough. It is never harsh. The spirit of metta always looks at the good side. It never looks for faults or mistakes or shortcomings. The spirit of metta is always forgiving. It is not resenting. It's not oppressing or controlling. The spirit of metta only works for the benefit of others. It never works for one's own selfish benefit. And lastly, the spirit of metta is free from entanglement. There is always independence. Or to add uh, something from my other Burmese teacher, Sayado Ujanaka, he often said, love, in the meaning of worldly love, love is attachment, whereas metta is detachment. I think it is very important to note that with the practice of loving-kindness, we do not approve of harmful or unwholesome deeds. It's not that by cultivating loving-kindness towards a person, we accept an unwholesome or uh, harmful deed. If, let's say, a person has hurt us uh, deeply, an emotional hurt or even uh, inflicted an injury by hitting us, then if we uh, cultivate metta for this person, it's not that we say that this uh, unwholesome deed was right or justified. But trying to have a heart full of metta, so we try not to react with anger or hatred. And therefore, we try not to close our heart for this person. When our heart is filled with metta, we actually can see much more clearly because we do not get caught up in the trap of anger or ill will, which is always making us blind in a way. So with metta, we just try to see this other person as another human being who also seeks happiness and wants to prevent suffering. As you have already said, pure metta is not dependent on any outer or inner 
conditions or circumstances. So therefore, it's unconditional. So we can call it unconditional love. As opposed to worldly attached love. So pure metta does not select beings according to what they do to us or what they don't do to us. And metta, loving kindness, does not expect anything in return. So pure metta, kindness, friendliness, is not used to expect that we, uh, that we get something back from the other person. So our ability to be loving, friendly, and kind must be truly boundless, must be truly unconditional and without limits. To illustrate this point, there is quite a number of stories to be found in the scriptures and even more so in the commentaries. And some of them are quite cruel and violent and uh, lots of blood is flowing in these stories. I'd like to relate one of these stories but I won't go into great detail to uh, explain the cruelty in further detail. It's a Chataka story, meaning a story of one of the Buddha's previous lives as a Bodhisattva, as a being destined to become the Buddha. And so it said in these lifetimes he had to Um, cultivate all the wholesome qualities to the highest degree, especially cultivating the paramis, the perfections. And so in this story, the Bodhisattva was a hermit called Kantivada, and as such, his teaching was one of patience to be patient. And in this story, the king of the country he lived in, for some reason, um, he was angry with Kantivada and he wanted to test his patience. And so the king got his executioner to hit the hermit with his stick, and then um, successively cut off the bodhisattva's arms, legs, nose, and ears. And each time before the king gave another order to the executioner, he asked the hermit what his teaching was, and Kantivada answered each time, Patience. Finally, the king 
was so enraged by the repeated answers of Kantivada that his teaching was patience that after his arms, legs, nose and ears had been cut off, the king stamped on the Bodhisattva's chest and walked away very angrily. The commander-in-chief was nearby and so when the king had left, he rushed up to the Bodhisattva, treated his wounds and asked him to not be angry at the whole country, but only to be angry at the king. And then the Bodhisattva responded with these words. He said, Long live the king whose cruelty has inflicted injury on my body. Pure saints like me never regard such deeds with enmity. I don't know Pali, but in the last line, I would rather say, pure saints like me never regard the person who does such a deed with enmity. So to make a distinction between the person and the person's deeds. I mean, there is no doubt that the cruelty of the king is blameworthy. It's an act to be condemned because it shows a complete lack of moral integrity. But can we see the king or any other cruel person just as another human being who basically seeks happiness and wants to prevent suffering. So can we see the king apart from his deed? I think that's the great difficulty. I know this seems quite an extreme story, but actually we have similar accounts of, for example, Tibetan nuns and monks who lived in Chinese prisons and who underwent really uh, the most atrocious forms of torture. And although they uh, were tortured in extreme ways, still their hearts, their mind, did not respond with anger or hatred, but with compassion and kindness towards the torturers. These monks or nuns, they had developed such pure and powerful metta, kindness and compassion, karuna, that the only response uh, towards the cruel actions of their torturers was one of compassion and non-hatred or kindness. And in some of the cases, we have heard 
that these nuns or monks also reflected on karma, volitional actions that will produce results. So reflecting on the karma of their torturers, knowing that their unwholesome deed, the torture, were really severe and heavy, knowing that these really unwholesome, heavy, negative actions would result sooner or later in unwholesome effects, so that these unwholesome deeds would produce suffering to these torturers. And so the thought that these torturers would at some stage would undergo so much suffering caused compassion in these nuns and monks. Compassion is said to be the quivering of the heart in the face of suffering and the wish to relieve suffering. So to give you one example, one Tibetan refugee was in a Chinese prison in a work camp for 18 years and finally he could escape and went to India and met the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. And in his meeting with the Dalai Lama, this refugee said that during these 18 years in the Chinese prison, he encountered a few dangers during this time. And the Dalai Lama, of course, thought that these were external dangers. But the refugee said that these moments of dangers were the moments when he feared to lose the compassion towards the Chinese, when he feared to become caught up with anger towards his torturers, towards the Chinese. So this account, it goes under my skin each time I read it or uh, relate it. It's, it's so powerful, I mean, it's almost unbelievable, but it's a true account. And only recently, I spoke to a person for whom it was so natural to differentiate between the person and his or her deeds. He said that this person might have done something blameworthy, for example, hurting him or other people. But he said that this person might also have done a kind act for his son that we don't know. 
so we can and should never reduce a person to a particular deed or to certain actions because that's never the whole person. We never see the whole picture. And as somebody has said, there is so much good in the worst of us and so much fault even in the best of us. So now I will go and talk about the reflections uh, on the dangers of anger, ill will, hatred, and the reflections that can be done on the benefits of patience. As much as we try to cultivate thoughts of loving kindness, we are not all the time able to, to do this. Because, as all of you have encountered in these few days of this retreat, Sometimes the mind is overcome with anger or ill will or resentment or it responds with grief, lamentation or sorrow. In the individual individual interviews of the past few days, one meditator has um, said that although he tried to cultivate loving-kindness for his benefactor, that lots of time he was overcome with grief and sorrow because this benefactor is terminally ill. The fact that this benefactor is so ill saddened his mind and the response was one of sadness, grief and sorrow and as a result uh, metta or pure metta did not really arise. Another yogi having issues with the mother said that although she has lots of gratitude towards her mother, but then while cultivating loving-kindness towards the mother, bearing this gratitude in mind, issues were arising and that clouded the metta and actually there were also states of ill will or resentment or... uh, just not beneficial states. So, this happens. And uh, we also need to understand that 
when instead of metta, thoughts of ill will or anger uh, arise, we do not need to be distressed or think uh, the way we practice metta is not correct. But actually, uh, such thoughts do arise and they arise as a way of purification. So, by their arising and by their recognition, we can gradually overcome them. And so, um, we can weaken them until uh, they no longer arise. Sometimes these thoughts of ill will or anger or sorrow, grief, come up, we notice them, and then they might uh, disappear again. Sometimes they can be quite strong, and then they can stay on for quite some time, or they come up again and again and again and again. And then this can lead us um, into a negativity that really pulls us down. And the stronger the negativity gets, the stronger, uh, the more difficult it becomes to get out of it. So we're kind of sucked into it. And when we just get stuck in negativity and if you're not able to get out of it anymore with just trying to cult loving kindness or to bring up in our mind the good, laughable qualities of the person we cultivate metaphor, then this is the time where we can resort to these reflections. So first I want to speak about the reflections on the dangers of aversion, ill will and hatred. All these forms of anger, ill will, hatred, resentment, grief can be put under the label of dosa, the party word dosa, which stands for all these different shades of anger, ill will, aversion, hatred, and so on. And so, to make it shorter, I will use the word dosa. But, but please understand that it has these different shades, ranging from the slightest irritation to the strongest form of hatred. So, in the Buddhist scriptures, there are many places where the dangers of dosa are mentioned. And here are some of them, it's like a summary. When dosa exists in the mind, then we are no longer able to distinguish between what is good and what is bad, or what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Or we are no longer able to distinguish what 
is law, lawful, and what is against the law. Then, because of dosa, many people will hate us, and we might have many enemies. Also because of dosa, we are liable to make mistakes, many mistakes. And it is said that because of dosa, at the time of death, our minds will be tormented and confused. And dying with a dosa mind, an angry mind, confused mind, that leads to an unfavorable rebirth, a rebirth in an unfortunate plane of existence. Then there are some more unwanted effects of dosa. It is said that an angry person ages faster and may die sooner. So lots of dosa may shorten one's lifespan. And dosa is often described as a fire. A fire that burns. And it burns in the mind, but it also burns the basis of that mind, which is the body. And as we know, heat, fire, will fasten the aging process. Also because of dosa, we can develop high blood pressure or a heart disease or have a stroke. And this one I find interesting. It said because of dosa, one will easily lose one's beauty or attractiveness. And in this line, as a comic result, as the result of uh, actions based on dosa, then it is said in a future uh, existence, one may have an ugly appearance. This could be a comic result of uh, lots of dosa in a previous uh, existence. And another unwanted uh, effect of dosa that greatly affects our day-to-day life is the fact that we might not be able to sleep properly or um, full of dosa, we cannot eat properly or our digestion uh, does not work properly. So these are some of the dangers that uh, are mentioned. Dangers of dosa. And as we all know, dosa is a very destructive force within ourselves, 
and in the world. And when we look around in the world, we see in many places there are wars and armed conflicts. Lots of them uh, are happening because of Dosa. And when we read the news, watch the news, then we might read or hear politicians say, all we want is peace, all we want is harmony, have good relationships with neighboring countries. But they make big words about wanting peace, but then they use weapons to bring about peace. And many times, since many years, when I hear such great statements, I think, how can they be so stupid to think that weapons will produce beautiful flowers of peace? I mean, every child knows that an apple seed will produce an apple tree. So how can weapons produce peace? Weapons produce injuries. They make blood flowing in large quantities. So these are some of the dangers of dosa showing how it affects ourselves and how it affects the world around us. As I said, dosa as the fire that burns us and so causing gradually our destruction. In the recent years, when I uh, was here teaching a retreat, I had also been visiting the Sinhalese Vihara in Katumba. And one of the monks there is Bante Kudagala Kovida. I don't know if he's still there. But he uh, had said, Becoming angry always means you are slowly killing yourself. How right he is. So, here is a set or a couple of um, reflections that takes into account that dosa, anger, hatred, aversion, are first and foremost hurting us and that they are causes to arouse further misery for ourselves. So one of these reflections goes along the lines, if another person has hurt us or inflicted harm to our body, we should reflect that by doing so, that this other person has actually defiled his 
or her own mind by that unwholesome action. And so that unwholesome action, that come up, is going to give rise to suffering, misery, sooner or later uh, for that person. And so then we should reflect that we should not let ourselves be affected by that person's foolishness, that unwholesome action, that unwholesome deed. So wouldn't it be stupid to follow in that person's footstep and also get angry? Or another reflection is a reflection uh, making use of different questions. And these questions are based on taking what a so-called person is, taking a person apart and dissecting it, dissecting the person into different parts or categories. So for this, we need to have a little bit of understanding like that this body, for example, uh, is made up of 32 parts. I had mentioned it in my last talk. Or that our whole being is just the five aggregates. Or that there are different uh, forms of consciousness. So, for example... If we get angry at another person, then we could ask ourselves, am I angry with the liver of this person? Or am I angry with the urine of this person? Am I angry at the hair of the head of this person? Am I angry at the bile of this person? Or... In regard to the five aggregates, am I angry at the Vedana, the feeling tone of this person? Or am I angry at the perception of this person? Or in regards to the four primary elements, could ask, Am I angry at the earth element found in this person? Am I angry at the wind element found in this person? And so, when we ask these questions, it becomes so obvious that it is actually quite ridiculous to become angry at some phenomena which are so utterly impersonal. So, we need a little bit of understanding that the Buddha had said none of these aggregates, none of these parts of the body, none of these elements uh, are a person or have any entity within themselves that could be regarded as a self or a person or a soul. 
if we could get angry at the soul or the self of a person, then maybe that would justify uh, our anger at this person. But to be angry at phenomena which lack any inherently existing entity is not only futile, but it also shows a great deal of delusion, of not understanding. And now I want to mention some reflections on the benefits of patience. Patience is kanti in Pali. It also has the meaning of tolerance or forbearance. Kanti, patience, tolerance, is one of the paramis, the perfections. It's also one of the blessings, mangala. And in regard to dealing with other people, or dealing with ourselves, it means that we are patient and tolerant and do not retaliate with angry words or shout at the other person or treat ourselves or another person ill, inflicting harm or any injuries. In one of his discourses, the Buddha talked about the benefits of patience. He also mentioned uh, its dangers. And it's a sutta found in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the chapter of the Fives. The Buddha was talking to a group of monks, so he addressed them as bhikkhus, but instead of bhikkhus, we can also say practitioners. So, this is what the Buddha said. Bhikkhus, practitioners, there are these five dangers in impatience. What five? One is displeasing and disagree- disagreeable to many people. One has an abundance of enmity. One has an abundance of faults. One dies confused. With the breakup of the body after death, one is reborn in the plane of misery, in a bad destination, in the lower world. These are the five dangers in impatience. And then he continued, because, or practitioners, these are the five benefits in patience. What five? One is pleasing and agreeable to many people. One does not have an abundance of enmity. One does not have an abundance of faults. One dies unconfused. And with the breakup of the body after death, 
One is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. These are the five benefits in patience. So in other words, if we are endowed with patience, then we will be loved by many people. We will be free from dangers, free from faults, and we will not die with a confused mind. And after death, we will be reborn in a good plane of existence. Patience or tolerance is a quality that is very important and that's why it is one of the paramis, one of the perfections that the Buddha-to-be needed to cultivate and develop to its highest degree. And also for us in our practice, we need to cultivate patience. Without it, we will not be able uh, to make progress on the path to liberation. Sayado Uinaka, in his book about Metta, talking about the benefits of patience, he has said, Patience is the weapon of the virtuous person. And the power of patience is like the power of an army that can resist the enemy. So it's a great weapon, but it's a weapon that does not cause a bloodshed, but that actually um, is helpful and helps to bring forth other good qualities that helps to uh, make insights possible. So there are many positive aspects of patience. And if we reflect in this way on the benefits of patience, then we will better understand the benefits of patience. And then with this better understanding, we will be more inclined to be be patient. Then we will be more willing to be patient and not give in to impatience or to anger or ill will. And so, in this way, the power of patience will gradually increase and become stronger. When I was living at the Jamyeyeta Meditation Center in Mobi, outside of Yangon in Burma, at one time we had a foreign meditator and he's, he was quite an aversive type. He had a lot, he had lots of aversion and anger and didn't like 
things, how they were. He got upset uh, quite often because things were not the way he wanted them uh, to be. So at one time, as he had an individual interview with Sayadaw Ujanaka, uh, I was present uh, at that time. I could sit in uh, just to witness how Jamie Sayadaw uh, was guiding, teaching the meditators. And so this foreign yogi uh, said to Sayadaw Ujanaka that it seemed to him that Westerners had more anger than Burmese people or uh, Asian people. And he asked, why was this so? And Sayadaw Ujanaka then said, this is so because Westerners do not understand the value and benefit of patience. I think it's so true. And just in the recent years, I think that this quality of patience has become an awkward commodity in this Western world because almost everything is almost instantly available. You know, it's only one mouse click away and we can get what we want. So these are some reflections that can be used while practicing uh, metta meditation at times when we get completely stuck in negativity and when we have no other way of pulling us out of this negativity. Then as a last um, thing to say, metta also works as a protection and a safeguard. Venerable Viranyani has also mentioned it. So basically, metta is a protection uh, from the kilesas, the defilements, the unwholesome states of mind. And especially a safeguard against dosa, all forms of anger, aversion, ill will. Because as we have heard, metta is uh, described as a-dosa, non-aversion, non-hatred, non-ill will. So the best weapon to defeat dosa is its direct opposite, and that's loving-kindness, goodness, benevolence. So metta is without doubt a very powerful and it's a very wholesome force that we always can depend upon for protection. 
Life is definitely much nicer when we spend it in the cool shade of metta, rather than walking on a dusty road in the burning sun. So let me close this talk with a quote from His Holiness, the 17th Karmapa. He is next to the Dalai Lama, one of the most important and high-ranking monks in the Tibetan Buddhism. And after the quote, we will sit uh, quietly for some moments. From the time we open our eyes in the morning until we sleep at night, if we can pass the whole day with a kind and loving heart and a cheerful face, then our mind will be relaxed when we go to sleep at night. On the other hand, if we spend the day making others upset, if we fight, and even if we win, When we are going off to sleep at night, we will have regrets and our mind will not be at ease. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate